Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this great word that we have. And, and certainly we, we love these tools that help us read through it in a year or Bible studies that we're part of to focus in on certain sections and learn and grow. But regardless of how we read it, we know it's your word to us. That as we read it, you will show up in our lives. You will teach us about who you are and who we are. It will orient our lives around what's true. It will begin to embed in our minds and our thoughts and our hearts that which should, should, we should live for and live with and live upon. And so I pray, Father, that even now as we come to the Scripture and we look at this psalm, that we'll be able to hear from you, that we would know that it is you who are speaking through it and that you would take it and apply it to our lives that it would provide truly the strength that we need to sustain us. It would be bread to eat and it would be sweet to us as we enjoy it together and we work our way around this. So guide our time, enable me as your messenger at this point. Thanks for not leaving us alone, but, but providing your word and your spirit and, and your community of people in which we learn and grow together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to Psalm 90. Psalm 90, I'm going to be looking through this this morning, preaching through it. And of course, you, as, we, as you find your way there, a reminder that the, the Psalms are really were like the hymnal of Israel, the corporate Israel. They would use it to guide their worship, to, to fashion their worship. And so it's, it was compiled in a kind of way to be used as, as a community. And, and there's a, it's not randomly put together. There's, there's, a, there's a purpose in the way that it's designed and there's five different books in the books of the Psalms and here we find that chapter Psalm 90 is at the very beginning of book four in just a moment I'll talk a little about the structure of that that's helpful for us as we look at it but the Psalm 90 it's a Psalm of of Moses that's is written in fact it's the only Psalm of Moses that we have it's recorded and compiled in the Psalms so let's read Psalm 90 together or not together but I'll read it and we can all read along prayer of Moses the man of God Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight or but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with flood. They are like a dream. Like grass that is renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength eighty, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger or the wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. 
Psalms give us these words throughout life, various kinds of psalms, various circumstances in which our life has, and it helps us to express what's going on. Psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of praise, psalms of lament, psalms that ascribe to God who he is and remind us who he is, that work us through the circumstances of life that don't seem to make a lot of sense to us, in which what we expected to be the case hasn't become the case. It gives us these words. As we come to Psalm 90, you can see that there's reflections that Moses has as he's reflecting on his life, as he's trying to work through the circumstances that he finds himself in, that he pens for us and helps us as well. There's a couple of horizons, a couple of lenses I think will help help us as we look at this. First of all, is this the author that Moses... When exactly did he write it? We're not exactly sure. When did he pen this particular psalm? We're not sure. But it certainly has lots of questions and lots of reflection that's there. And if we think about Moses, perhaps in the wilderness, as he had led the the people of Israel for those 40 years, round and around they went, really with no destination, only waiting for people literally to die off so that the next generation could be ushered into the promised land. That even he is himself, as he waits and looks maybe even upon the promised land that he himself, because of his own sin, would be prevented from entering into it, that he's wrestling with really the futility of his life, and is there anything really good, and what has happened? And he reflects on the curse and the fall and his own sinfulness, and he asks the question, what what can we know for sure? What is an anchor for my soul? What will be something that's fixed and secure? And he dials in on the very dwelling place of God, of God himself. And so one angle, one lens that we can have is Moses himself as he writes this. Another lens which is helpful for us is is the nation of Israel just after the exile. Many people believed, many commentators believe that the, the Psalms were compiled, all 150 of them, those we have them, at that period of time, that they were arranged in a kind of way and a purpose for that group of people as they came back from exile out of Babylon into back to Jerusalem that they tried to make sense of the history. They tried to make sense of their lives, that they're 70 years now living outside of the land, living apart from the temple, living without a king. How do we make sense of our lives? And these psalms are put together to kind of trace in some way the history of their people and to make sense of it. And now as we come to this book four, there is a progression. And quickly, the first three books of the Psalms, as we look at the big framework, the first three books up through Psalm 89 had an emphasis on the king being David, that there would be one visible, a person who would sit on the throne that God had established. And the visible representation of that one on the throne reminded them of God's covenant, of his promise to his people. And they could look at the king and say, yes, God is God because there's a king. But now they had come to a period in their history where there was no king that this pillar that they had rested upon was gone, that God, by his judgment, had removed a king, and there was no king that they could look to. And here, as we come through the course of the history of Israel, and Psalm 90 in Book 4 has a different emphasis. It moves to see not a visible king on a physical throne, but it begins to move and see a heavenly king on a heavenly throne. As you read through Book 4, Psalm 90 through 106, you see that the clear emphasis is on God that he is the king, that our Lord reigns. And so he is the king, and it helps them to understand in their period of time as they reflect on their lives to make sense of the absence of the physical king. The pillar that they had rested on was a physical, visible king they could see is now gone. And so their eyes by faith must see the king to which 
their physical king, the real king, will only symbolize. And they would see and uphold that. So these are the two lenses we can understand. Moses there wondering about his life in the 40 years in the wilderness. And we can see that these things that the Israel had rested in and depended upon and the pillars that they had rested in were now gone. The king certainly being one of them. And they wondered now, what will uphold us? What is certain? What is sure? What we can depend on when the evidence of God's promises seem to be gone? What do we trust in? What do we rest in? What Moses does for us is he places for us, he identifies something that we can lock in on, something that will not move, and that's the very presence of God. Because we find ourselves in the same kind of circumstances, right? Things we depended on, things we thought would be sure and certain that we could certain that we could look at and we could find strength, we could find security in those things either are gone from our lives or suspect as to their dependence that we can actually find that rest in or trust in. We find them to be gone and we find ourselves in similar situations wondering, what does the future hold? What does it look like? What happens when the fiscal cliff comes? What happens to my job? What happens in our relationships? As we look down the road, it's very clear that what will happen, we can know for certain that what is, what we we don't know will happen, it will. And the pillars and the things that we look to to trust in will eventually be taken away. And so what do we depend on spiritually, financially, relationally in that way? And this psalm does not airbrush the reality of life. It gives us a clear understanding of what it looks like to live under the curse in a world that is cursed, that is fallen, we as fallen people. But it gives us anchor, something we can hold on to. In the very beginning and the very end, the author helps us find what is it that we can truly anchor our lives in? What is it that we can fix our lives upon? Even in the midst of a movable world, a changeable world, the only thing we know that will be certain is that it will change. What do we fix ourselves upon? And we see here he opens, Moses opens with this reflection on the Lord, the Lord who is a dwelling place. And he ends with the same thing. In verse 17, the Lord who is our God. And we see here that he anchors in the very presence of God, a dwelling place throughout all generations, a Lord who is present in their lives, who is present in their circumstances and in their midst, and who is theirs. He is ours, that they can lock and they can find themselves in. Verses 3 through 11, we paint a, a picture of humanity under the fall, under the curse. And there's some characteristics we're going to pull on. We'll see that what's really true of our lives, what's really true, it shouldn't surprise us, but oftentimes it does. And so... It is to humble us and to reveal truly our insufficiency and and what we're made of and to be able to look at and find, ultimately, look to God. Verses 12 through 17 is this response to observation and reflections on a life that has fallen in a fallen world. What do we do? What do we look to? And how is it that we find and, and anchor our lives in the very presence of God? And that's where the psalmist takes us there and and ends. But the pivotal verse... In this is verse 12, reflection on life, the hardness that's there, and then the, the question to ask. So teach us. And that's the pivotal verse around which everything else flows. And we'll look at that. But let's start at the beginning, the anchor that he gives to us and the need that we have at the same time. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. You have been a place for us to live and to dwell. You have been for us a home. And you think about the, the children of Israel as they wandered the 40 years 
in the wilderness. They did not have a physical home. They did not have an address that was fixed. It was constantly changing. And what Moses says here, even though we, by our geography, was constantly changing, we were changing that you have been a place for us to live, that you have been a place for us to dwell. You have been a home for us. A number of years ago, uh, this was to be 10 years now, my family, we had a chance to go to Mexico and lead a team with Campus Crusade for Christ for a summer. And we spent about six or seven weeks in uh, Puebla, Mexico on a campus there. And outreach led some students and staff. And, you know, it was, it was a great trip. But one of the key marks or ingredients of cross-cultural ministry or being in cross-cultural setting for, for very long is just fatigue and tiredness. And after a period of time, you just... You just find yourself tired as the day goes on, and you're just emotionally drained. And I remember even after being there for a little while, just going, I'm just tired all the time and going, is something wrong with me? And then I remembered, oh, yeah, I'm not home. (laughs) This isn't like the place I remember. And everything about the place I was in was subtly or overtly different from the place that I called home. The language is different. The smells were different. The food was different. The transportation was different. The taxi cab drivers was different. The water was different. Everything was different. And everything about that difference weighed on me. And there was a sense that I felt it. But one of the things I ran to, I learned this from Bill, I learned that the Snickers, the Snickers could be something I could really depend on. What I mean by that is I could open up a Snickers and know what I'm going to get. No matter what, you know, the enchiladas came from this to that and the drink from this to that. But I could know I could open a Snickers. And if it was here or here, I could open it. It was the same thing. I knew what to expect. And so on various occasions, I would find my way to a grocery store or wherever I would find the place to find a Snickers. And I would open it. Maybe in the evening, maybe at lunch, maybe in the morning, whenever, you know, whenever you needed it, you'd grab a Snickers. And there was a sense, of, oh, yeah, this is familiar. I can count on this. Brought some sort of comfort. Well, it wasn't. It was hard on our whole family to live in, in that place for a period of time. Um, even more so, I think about our youngest, uh, Libby, who was three at the time. And she was old enough to know that she was not home. But she was young enough to not quite understand where she was and why she was there. <laughs> what the heck are my parents doing to me here? And so she wrestled to kind of make sense of everything around her that was different. And so you try to console her as a parent, you're trying to help her kind of understand or just console her and let her know that you're there. But it somehow, sometimes it didn't really even matter. But one of the things that did help for her, she would have her blanket and she would have it with her and she would hold it up next to her face. And then she would smell it and she would rub it on her face. And that smell and that touch for her, you could just see it would provide that sense of home. Because everything about her place said, I'm not home. But that did, that provided something for her. It reminded her she wasn't, but there was a place called home that was real. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. If you've ever been in a place and you've realized that something's not quite right about where I'm at. It's not familiar. It's not the same. It's not what I expected. It's not certain. It keeps changing on me. And I think that this is it. There's something innate within each one of us that's designed to have that sense of homeness, to be at home, we long for that kind of safety, that kind of security, the familiarity that this place will bring us. Some place where we don't have to worry about who we are because we know whose we are. For some of us, we've had homes that have kind of offered that to us. For many of us as well, that home has not been that kind of place that has provided those 
kinds of things, but perhaps even the opposite. But regardless, we were made and we have this innate kind of design to long for that and to want that. Psalm 90 pulls on that and the author, Moses, says, you have been that for us. You have been a home for us. You have been a dwelling place for us. No matter where we have found ourselves, no matter what circumstances that we have found ourselves within, You have been a dwelling place. And that dwelling place has several different themes kind of woven in together of it. In in that passage that we have dwelling place, it could be, it's just a place to find security. It's a place that that we can be sheltered from the external elements to know we can run to and be sheltered from that. So there's a place of security. It's safe. It's a place we can run. There's also an element of permanence. It's a dwelling place throughout all generations. It hasn't changed It has permanence. It doesn't change because God doesn't change. And there's a third one. There's a sense of belongingness, a sense of identity that's found as well in this dwelling place because he says, you have been our dwelling place, that you are the one to whom we belong. It's a location, but more than a geographical location, it's a person that provides permanence, security, and identity. We know whose we are, whether we know anything else about our lives or with circumstances around us. And so Moses, as he writes, he says, Lord, you have been this plate for us. It's not about geography. It's about a person being known by a person, finding our security in that person and knowing that he will not change. And that this dwelling place, this home that we have in him is a gift that he gives to us. It's not something that we can develop or manufacture ourselves, but rather it's a place that he provides as a gift to us that you have been a refuge, a place of safety. And it's in his presence that we find that we have a home that doesn't change. And so he begins with an anchor for everyone who follows God, for everyone who seeks him and recognizes this place is at home. We see that he finds a home in him. The fact of the matter is we all do run and try to find those places of comfort. We try to find things that will bring comfort or security to us. Sometimes they're good and we can find a kind of security that's helpful for us, eventually everything will fail. Others certainly have run and struggled with things, and whether it would be alcohol or be substances or whether it would be sex, that they would seek those things to find and to fulfill themselves. And we'll find that that brings only slavery to them, that it doesn't truly bring life. It doesn't bring a kind of at-homeness where one is safe, but only slavery. And the fact of the matter is there's only one place that we can find that kind of security and permanence. Only one place that we can find where this true identity, and that's in the very presence of God in him. And so we run to him. We find that he is the one that we can run to. And as one is written in the panorama of time and eternity, we have a fixed address. We have a home in the very presence of God. So Moses begins with this, and he he would say, yes, we have a place. The people of Israel, as they would reflect on this, and would say, yes, we have a home. No matter where we are in Babylon or trying to rebuild Jerusalem, we have a home. And we ourselves, in the circumstances that we find ourselves, the truth is is the same, that we have an anchor truth that it doesn't change. It's permanent, it's secure, and it provides a sense of identity for us. Moses goes on for us as he reflects. There's an anchor, but there's a reality in which we live, and that's the condition of humanity, the condition of living in a fallen world as fallen people, that we are fallen, that there is a curse that is real. In 3 through 11, he works through that, and there were at least three different descriptions of this condition in which we live that makes sense as we read it, but oftentimes we 
forget about these realities. And he reflects on this and says, yeah, these are true. In verse 3, he says that you return man to dust. And so we're reminded there of the shortness of life, that there is a transience, that, that life is short for us. And he there, of course, is reflecting on back in the, the curse and the fall in Genesis chapter 3, where God curses creation as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve. And in that curse, there's, there's real things that happen. There's eternal consequences that are real, but there's temporal ones as well that, that life is now hard. And in verse 19 of chapter 3, as this curse comes by this, God says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so the shortness of life is seen, it's pictured in this picture of dust. We are dust. From dust to dust. And we know that's true. Other images that Scripture uses are, says that life is like a vapor. It's like a mere breath. That it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And so there's a shortness of life that's, that's true of our condition. Secondly, there's a, a fragileness to life. And he goes on in 5 and 6. He says, you sweep them away as with a flood, as like a dream. And then he uses this image of grass, that grass, so it's renewed in the morning. And the, in the morning, it flourishes and renewed. In the evening, it withers and it fades. And so life is short. Life is fragile, that it's here today. And this image of grass is certainly one we read about in the, in the call to worship, where he says, Christ, says, what you like, Christ? says, oh, man, all flesh is grass that is here today and gone tomorrow, that flourishes in the morning and fades ultimately when the breath of God, when he breathes on that. But there's one thing that stands. The one thing that will stand, though everything will else will fade, is the word of God and who he is. And so this reminder of the fragileness of life, that any strength that we think we have is really a perception. It's a gift of God. If we think we're strong, we're really not. It's only that he has allowed us to be strong for a period of time, to be healthy for a period of time, to find ourselves in this condition for a period of time, and at some point that will end. And as it says, he will breathe on us and we will find, we will wither and perish by his hand as well. And so the strongest and the healthiest of us um, is as frail as a flower that a little boy gets a hold of and he rips the top off of, and it is no more. That that, that, that frailty is true of us. I saw a picture of this a couple of weeks ago just before Christmas when we were driving home to, to Missouri, northern Missouri, we were cruising. It was right after the snowstorm, and uh, I guess you call it a snowstorm in the ice, and north, on, north 35 in Kansas City. Most of the roads were fairly clear, and I was driving full speed. And, uh, but there were a few patches of ice that I just thought didn't think anything of. And driving up there, I had the cruise control, control set, and I was driving along. And, and just beyond the underpass, there was a little patch of ice, and I didn't pay any attention to it. But as soon as I hit that patch of ice. In this particular time, my wheels, just for a split second, begin to spin. They begin to kind of turn, and, and the van didn't do what it was normally doing on the road, on pavement. I realized in that moment that I was in thin ice. As we drove, we hit that ice, and for a second, I didn't know what was going to happen. I knew that one of any hundred things could happen to that van with the, all my family in the van. And of course, what happens is you kind of wake up and your heart starts beating. And you hit the, you know, you kind of slow down. And you begin to grab the, grab the wheel and you go, whoa. And of course, we went right on through. There was no problem by God's grace. But I realized in that moment, as I, that one moment of time when my wheels begin to spin, 
begin to go, wow, any one of a hundred things could have happened, most of them not good. That the frailness of life is real, and we don't know it, but it sneaks up on us in just a moment. Just that moment, realized that I was on thin ice, and each one of us is. That's the reality of life. That's the reality that Moses is painting. That's the reality of living under the curse, that we are frail. There's a shortness of life. There's a frailty to life as well. It's not just morbid, it's, it's real and it's helpful for us to see this and to hear this, to know it, to be certain, to allow it to inform our lives. But he goes on to describe our lives as, as, as short, as uh, transient, as frail, but then in verses 7 through 11 is fallen, that we see that we're, we live in sin as sinners under the wrath of God, rightly deserving what we have. And that affects our lives. It makes life hard. It brings sweat to our brow and it causes the labor that we put forth at times to seem futile. At times the toil and labor are days to just to be filled with work and labor and we wonder, is anything really going to come from this? And that's what it means to live under the fall, in the fall, in as fallen people. And so Moses, as he reflects on this, certainly he has the the Israelites in the background certainly has his own disobedience to God as he, as he sits there wondering about his own sin and living under the wrath of God. Certainly Israel did in that post that appeared after the exile as they wrestled with reconstituting their lives. And back in Jerusalem, we do the same thing. We live and we toil and we work. We find ourselves to be sinful. We find ourselves to be predisposed to being disobedient to God. In verse 8, says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence, that it's in God's presence that we find our sin, that we see our sin, that he makes it clear that he sees it and we see it and we need to know it. And he says the secret sins in light of your presence. And again, they're secret not to him, but oftentimes they're secret to us that we don't even realize because we're so good at justifying and rationalizing our sin. And we certainly hide it from ourselves and we hide it from others. And so we need to see that it's before him. We need him to reveal the fact that we are and live in a fallen world as fallen people. But it goes on in 9 and 10, describes this connection between our, our fallenness and the harshness of life with our sin. That life is difficult, life is hard, it's short, and, it's, and we're frail because of our sin. There's a connection here. He goes on to say, you know, that we might have 70 or 80s, 80 years to, to live, maybe, but you bring our years to an end with a sigh. And you see that the, the language even there, this sigh just says, I wonder if there's any meaning to this. And this is the, the question of those under the curse. And then in verse 10, he says, our years of 70 and 80, when he goes on to describe that their span is, is but toil and trouble. And we go, yeah, life is hard sometimes. There's these seasons where it's just very, very difficult. And I know it doesn't take many years to come face to face with that truth. And the fact is we don't deserve any better that the curse of the garden promised some things. It promised that things would come hard. It promised that there would be sweat and toil. There would be pain. There would be suffering. That life would not go as we would hope it would be. But the fact is that we are surprised by that. We're surprised by the shortness of life or the fragility of life or the fallenness of our own selves and others. We are surprised whether we should be surprised or not. I'm not so sure, but we can't expect anything different. And so the psalmist is 
as Moses writes here, he says, this is how we find ourselves in this fallen state. And he concludes this section in verse 11. He says, who considers the power of your anger or the wrath according to the fear of you? And he ends with a question, right? He ends with a rhetorical question. At one level, there's no answer. Who really considers who you are? Who really understands your holiness? Who really understands the own gravity of their, their own sin? And who lives honestly in reference to who he is in a worthy kind of manner? You see, the power and his wrath and the quality of the reverence that's due him eludes us all. And all of us find ourselves in the same place, no matter what generation we find ourselves in. Life is short. We're frail. We find ourselves as sinners without a clue to exactly what that means. We need him to be at work in our lives. And so God is the one who's instituted these things. He is the one who's ordained the shortness of life, the frailty of life, and even our own sin, our own insufficiency in that area. He has stepped in and said, this is what life will be like as a result of sin. And why does he do that? Why does he say your life is going to be short, frail, and fallen? Why does he do that? It's to get our attention. It's to remind us and to compare our lives to his. And as we do that, our eyes are opened. As we do that, we see we are not sufficient. And he says that he is. As we do that, we understand him to be the one that is eternal. He is the one that can inform our lives. And so he does that. He uses our own insufficiency, our own limitations to wake us up and to see our need for him. And so God has ordained these things to be true about our lives, but they are not the only things true about our life. There is something more true than just that we are fallen, that life is short, and that we are frail. And what is more true has something to do with him. And it's locked in not to the curse, but it locks itself into the the covenant, the promise that God has made to his people, because that's where our hope will be found Psalmist goes on as he reflects on the condition of humanity. He says, now, what do we do in verse 12? How do we find the presence of God that is our anchor? How do we live there? You see, every generation will find themselves in the same place. They need the same thing. They need permanence. They need security. They need a sense of identity. They need the same thing that Moses needed in Israel. The post-exile period of time, every generation needs that same thing. We need we suffer from our own transience, our own frailty, and our own sin that's there. Especially here in the 21st century, we find that we need more than what we can offer ourselves. And so the question is, how do we get that? How do we enjoy the presence of God? How do we find something certain and immovable in the midst of our circumstances? And simply put, as, as Moses does, so we do the same thing. We simply come to him and say, will you teach us by your power, by your sovereignty, by your goodness, would you step into our lives? Would you teach us? Would you give us? Would you enable us to, to acquire that which we don't have ourselves? Would you give us your wisdom and your presence? Would you, if you will, would you turn the curse? Would you reverse the curse, the effects of the curse on us temporarily? And would you allow the effects of that reversal to be so effective now that it would lead us into eternity? That we could experience a sense of at-homeness here and now but that the effects would not just end here, but those effects would enter in eternity, that we would find truly an eternal home. And so Moses comes to him. He comes and says, would you teach us? So in light of these things, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Would you teach us? Certainly coming to him and asking to teach assumes something, right? It assumes that he can't find that information anywhere else, that 
he must be taught by someone else. That God himself, the one who is, who dwells in eternity, must inform us of the reality of our days, must help us to see truly our condition. The one outside of our condition is the only one that can truly speak to our condition. So he says, would you teach us? Would you be the one in eternity by your grace, by by your mercy, would you teach us? Would you open my eyes to what's really true of our condition, the shortness of it, the frailty? Would you help me to see that? And would you enable me to, to count, to number my days well? And of course, the numbering, as I mentioned, in the offertory isn't just counting. It's an evaluating. It's a setting back and going, wait a second here. I have a finite number of days. In fact, the finite number of days, I don't even know. In fact, the finite is so small, I don't even realize how small it is in reference to who God is. And we say, would you help me to evaluate? Would you help me to live now? Would you help me to think about what life is, what should really constitute and fill my life now? And only you can teach me because I can't teach myself. Would you help me to evaluate well my life? Help me to number my days well. Psalm 39.4, Psalmist writes, O Lord, make me to know my end And what is the measure of my days? Let me to know how fleeting I am. As we see the shortness, it enables us to see clearly how we live as he steps in and teaches us. So he says, you must teach us. We need you to be the one. Help us number our days so that we may gain, we may acquire a heart of wisdom. Nowhere else can we go truly to find the wisdom of God. This this heart of wisdom is a picture of not just knowledge or information or data that we have. It's somehow just kind of we read and it comes. It's something that informs our lives at the very core of our being. This wisdom of God is built upon submission to him. It's understanding that wisdom comes alone from him. And and as he teaches us, it becomes a part of the very fabric of our lives, a part of the fabric of the way we live and speaks against and opposes even our own wisdom, our own ideas in relation to his. And so he is the one that will give us a heart of wisdom and sees two things bound together First of all, the, our wisdom as he gives it to us is a growing awareness of this condition that we've already described, of condition of living under the curse, the shortness and frailty and fallenness in my own life that's there and it's real. But on the other hand, not to see, to see him, to understand him and his eternity and his majesty and his permanence and who he is. And not to see him just as the opposite of me, not just to the antithesis of who I am, but to see him as an answer, to see him as the solution to my condition. I look at my condition, I could end right there and say, oh, that's tough, I guess I'll just die and move on. Uh Uh-uh. We look at God and he says, as you receive this wisdom, you'll find that I'm the answer, I'm the solution to the reality of this curse that you live under. And so these two things come together. We will find our spiritual home in him. We're able to rest in him as we look to him as that place to run. And so God says, as we come to him, say, teach us to number our days, to evaluate our days, so we may gain from you this heart of wisdom that would drive and move and reinforce our lives. And what does God do at that point? When his people come to him and ask for that, what what does he do? He's not reluctant. He is desiring to do that. He is generous. And James says explicitly, for us is one five. He writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. We know that God will give us the wisdom that we need as we come to him. As you think about that, that God says, I want to give you that. Think about a, a father of a 16 year old son who says his son comes to his dad and he says, dad, you know, I'm about ready to start driving now. 
and I kind of know myself, and I don't, you know, pay a lot of attention, and I can be distracted very easily. And, and as I start driving now, what I would like is to come, I would like you to help me learn how to drive wisely. Would you do that for me? You just chuckle at this point, right? And then, and then, you know, after the dad picks himself up off the floor, <laughs> he says, yeah, that's the very thing I would love to do. And God says, yes. As we come to him and say, would you help me understand my life? Would you help me look at my days properly? Would you help me gain wisdom that alone comes from you? And God says, yes, of course. The very thing I would love to do, I will, by my grace and my power, I will teach you. I will help you understand. I'll help you acquire and gain the wisdom that only comes alone from me, that helps you evaluate your life, helps you live in light of that truth. We live now here, we have how many hours until the new year starts? And we're on this cusp again of starting to count our days again, right? You start back over at one and we start again at 365 moving through those days. It's a great time to say, Lord, would you help me to count my days right? Would you help me to live in light of who you are and what you've called me to, to do? Would you help me to gain a heart of wisdom? And God desires to do that. We desire a home and God says, I'm going to give that. It's going to be my presence to you. We live under the curse. But as we come to him, we realize that, that the, the most true reality is not that we live under the curse, but that we live in the context of promises that he's made to us. And the only hope that we have truly of enjoying the promise of his presence is to look not to the curse, to understand it, but to understand the promise. He says, I will be with you. And the rest of this psalm, as I watch my watch tick by, which we don't have time to unpack, really does give a picture of this promise. And as you move on here quickly, verse 13 through 17, it's a picture. It has language that helps us go and remind us that God will step into our difficult and challenging reality and teach us and, and be with us. Verse 12, verse 13, rather, Psalmist writes, David says, or uh, Moses says, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. We see there. This language of the Lord, the one who is the sovereign one, the covenant God, says, says, and he asks for pity. He says, we show us mercy. And then in verse 13, 14, rather, the psalmist writes, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. And we see, again, this language, again, of his, his love, the steadfast, faithful love of God, the oath-bound love of God. That He says, would you satisfy us? Nothing else will satisfy me. Nothing else in this world does satisfy, but your love will as I look around, I try to find satisfaction. Only your love will do that. So would you show mercy? Would you show love to me? Goes on to verse, verse 15. He says, make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us, for as many years as we've seen evil. And you see, somehow he's wrestling with days of affliction and evil. And he says, would you by your grace counterbalance these days of affliction with your grace and your gladness that I would experience not all my days would be just toil and suffering and difficulty. Would you show up and somehow in my life by your grace and, and bring gladness that will match? And in God's economy, of course, that matching is not a one for one, it's not an hour for hour for when he shows up, he overwhelms us with his grace. And he says, my grace will over, overcome a lifetime of affliction, of challenges, of suffering and so God's grace is seen here as he steps into our lives and promises. And so we see this. We seek him for his wisdom, and he says he'll give it to us. His mercy provides for us. His steadfast love, he has an oath that he ties himself to us and says, your outcome will be bound to me and my love for you. In verse 15, this, 
this sense of grace. He says, I'm going to allow you to see, you will see gladness in life. And so God's promises are the place in which we can find this presence that we need, this home that we were made to have, that it's there. Circumstances might not indicate that. Visible signs and things we had looked to might not show that he really is the one, but he says, I am. I have bound myself to you in my promise. There is a curse and it's real and you will feel that, but even more true and even more importantly, you need to remember the promise I've made for you. And then the psalmist comes to the end. He says that the point of all this in verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to your children. And of course, this work of God is to be displayed and it's to put him on display in his work and his operation in our lives. That what most defines our reality now is not the curse, but it's his promise and his ability to fulfill his promise. That he puts on display his work. And the beauty here is that we have something to pass on to the next generation. His power will be seen to the next generation that follows us. And then in verse 17, we see that there's, as God is anchored in eternity, he brings meaning to our days. He says, let the favor, the, the beauty, the, the pleasantness of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We can't miss, right? The redundancy there. Yes, I know you just said that. Establish the work of our hands. I'm going to say it again. Establish the work of our hands. And what is he telling that to us? What he says is that there's meaning to our days. If you read 3 through 11, you might think our days are pointless. Our days are futile. The work that we put in as we try to make something of our lives seems to be futile. But he says no. The prayer at the end of the day here is that as God steps into our lives, that he is able to establish the work of our hands, to make meaning and to give meaning there. That it's not futile. It's hard and it's difficult and there's certainly pain involved in the process. But the prayer request and the request for us and the hope is that something good will come out of it, that he will establish us. There's a kind of concreteness there. And you think about your own lives and what is the work of your hands? What constitutes that? What are you trying to accomplish with your lives? You're trying to work a job and do well there. You're trying to raise a family or, or live and walk in such a way that will honor God. You're trying to, to be good to your family. You're trying to present the gospel to those around you. What is the work of your hands? God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to meet that work, which on your own cannot. You can't do anything with it. It will be under a curse unless I come and bring my promise. And so he says, I will come, I will establish, I'll bring meaning, I'll bring value, I'll bring effectiveness to your work. Even in those circumstances where it doesn't seem to, to be the right, one right answer, as we struggle with what to do with our finances, what to do with our job, what to do with our family, what to do with these things. And we want to know what's the silver bullet, what's the formula here, and we don't find a formula that fixes everything. We come to those moments in time, we say, God, will you... Take my diligent work as it's submitted to you, and will you establish it? Will you make it worthwhile? Will you bring something good to the effort of my hands? Would you take your hands and place them on mine and actually bring something good out of it that will be productive, that will stand, that will be, be established for you? Isaiah 26 writes, All that we have done you have accomplished for us. And Psalm 127, 1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, the labors, those labor in vain. And so we recognize our effort requires his effort. But as he meets our effort with his, that he will establish the work. And this is great news for us as we 
struggle through our lives to go, wow, he will establish something as I entrust myself to him and seek him. So there's a great hope that our days do have value, that the home that he provides for us is real, it's permanent, secure, as it's rooted in his presence. And he says, I'm going to do something in your lives, but I'm going to do something in your lives now and establish it not just for the days that you can count, but I want to do something even beyond that, that this is a a down payment, this is a, a foreshadowing, something even greater that I want to give you. I want to give you a home here. I want you to have a place, and it's rooted in my presence. But even more than that, there's a home that you'll have in eternity. And as we struggle here and now, we struggle with, with working through this again, the, the conditions in which we live, but all these things, the shortness of life, the, the frailness of life, and our fallenness, our signposts, and they're pointing us towards something else. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. And so as we compare the afflictions of this life, we need to look not just to the end of this life, the days we can count, but beyond that. He says there's something even greater, even beyond what we experience here, the affliction, the difficulties which are real, that goes beyond it. It outruns this. And he says that. And God has ordained this reality for us, the shortness of life and the frailty for this purpose. And it points us beyond ourselves, beyond even these days, as important as they are and valuable as they are, as he steps into our lives to days that follow us. Have you ever noticed or wondered why we are so surprised when things don't go right, when life is short, when life is difficult, that somehow as if something strange were happening? Why is it that we do that? And, and C.S. Lewis pulls on this theme as we look at our lives and in conclusion or read this. He says in, in the reflections on the Psalms, he says, For we are so little reconciled to time or to mortality that we are even astonished at it. How he has grown, we exclaimed. How time flies as though the universal form of our experience were again and again a novelty. It is as strange as if a fish were repeatedly surprised at the wetness of water. And that would be strange indeed. Unless, of course, the fish were destined to become one day a land animal. See, our own condition as we reflect, as we see it, becomes a lens through which we understand our lives and go, oh, there's something more. That there is a home here that God has fashioned for us. There's something real and it's a a permanent place that we can find our identity and security in. In the midst of a fallen culture of fallen lives that are short and surprising to us. As we find our home in God, he says, count these days, make them count. But remember that these days that you can count are just a a taste, a foretaste of the days that you'll experience a home that is not countable at all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this promise that you've given to us. And many of us here have experienced the, the, the pain and difficulty of life in various ways. Uh, it, it is real, the shortness of life, the frailty of life, our own fallenness and our own sin. And we confess this is real and we need you to inform us about this. And so we rest now in this reality, in this condition, and we look to you. I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would enable us to come to you in the midst of our situations <clears throat> and to ask you to teach us and to show us and to comfort us. I think of situations, circumstances in our, our body. I think of Connie, Connie Negan and now their daughter Judy and pray as she suffers continually with, these, with 
headaches and all the pain that goes with that, that you would be with her and with the, the doctors who try to sort this out. Pray with those many who have suffered loss in the recent days, who have saw indeed these truths, the condition of the humanity and the world in which we live. And would you enable them by your promise and your presence to, to move beyond the, the real harshness to taste your goodness. We're grateful for the birth of their uh, little Carolyn to Tom and Amy yesterday, Tom and Amy Knutson. We pray for them. We pray as a new year is upon us that you would continue to equip us and strengthen us to live and to count and reflect and evaluate our days well. We need you to do that. Help us to live as those who have hope, even in the midst of difficulties, and to be able to demonstrate that to others around us. We're grateful that we rest in something that is certain, and that is you and your presence. Remind us that each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I ask you to stand. Um, reminder that uh, elders are available to pray for you at particular needs up here at the, at the end of the service. So we remember and that it's his power that we need. And so we receive this as God's benediction to us. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore.